Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now On this week's episode, we talked to Dan Moore of New Order Loggers. Dan Moore is a professional brewer gone back to his home brewing roots where he is delving into making non-traditional loggers under pressure. So we're going to talk to him this week and dive into New Order Loggers on Homebrewing DIY. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, the show covers it all. On this week's show, we're talking to Dan Moore of New Order Loggers. We're going to talk about making non-traditional loggers under pressure and some of the benefits that you can get from doing so under pressure. So stick around and listen to the interview we have today with Dan. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's because of you that this show can come to you week after week. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY and give it any amount today. Another way to support the show is head on over to coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. And there you can give a one-time support by buying me a beer. I was bought a beer last week by Olu Shonai, so thank you, Olu, for buying me a beer on coffee. I really do appreciate the support. The, another way to support the show is to write us a review. Head on over to podchaser.com, or you can use Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of your app and leave us a five-star review. Those reviews help others find the show. The last way to support the show is head over to homebrewingdiy.beer and use our sponsor banners. If you're going to buy some homebrew equipment or do some shopping for a batch online, go to homebrew.org using our sponsor banner and doing so will support the show. Now, I, I think we're pretty much done with announcements. Let's jump into this week's episode where we are talking to Dan Moore about New Order loggers. I'd like to welcome Dan Moore to the show. He's the former head brewer over at Nighthawk Brewing here in Broomfield, Colorado, and which is the next town over for me. And then you used to also work over at Great Divide. Is that right? 
Yes, sir. I worked in the logistic department for uh, about three years. That's awesome. So uh, I, I will say, Dan, you're probably one of the first pro brewers we've had on the show, though you're not pro brewing. Oh, now. Wow. You're, you're doing. A, you're, yeah, I, I, I've, I've mainly only had home brewers. And so or a lot of brewing authors. Uh, I mean, I'm into those. But uh, well, hey, yeah, most of us come full circle. You know, we start with home brewing and go back into pro brewing. And I, I know a lot of guys from the industry that have left the industry, got back into, into home brewing. Like, man, I missed this part of it. Yeah. Well, th- isn't that funny? Cause th- that is where you are right now. Right. It's so, uh, Dan, Dan actually runs a very small Facebook group, less than a hundred people. And it's called new order loggers. And it's a, it's a group that I'm a member of. And you do, a ton of lagers. If I would say what you pretty much brew exclusively is lager, pretty much would we say that? Correct. Yeah, hundred percent lagers. I haven't. Uh, I don't think I've pitched ale yeast in anything in probably going on three years now. Wow, that that is a while. And, and so the reason we're gonna what we're gonna talk about today is I I want to talk about lagers. Uh, I know that with new order lagers, the idea is that these are, and we've talked about this on the podcast before these different kind of pseudo loggers or 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 loggers at ale temperature kind of strategies that we have out there and mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. this is this is a facebook group that really is kind of leaned into that and i've done shows where we've talked about doing things with kvike yeast and hybrid beers and things like that but i i, I want to point out that you do a lot of loggers under pressure and so i i wanted to have you on the show to talk about pressure fermenting in in general and mm-hmm. and and making great lagers with pressure fermenting. So let, let's just start there. Uh, you know, if I if I wanted to get into a lager or what a how about a better way to start is what would you say a new order lager is to you? Uh, to me, it's just uh, getting the end product of traditional lagers with taking non traditional methods of doing. It. Um, even not so much having to do just a pressure fermentation, but the people that are doing the high temperature loggers uh, using yeast that are conducive to it, like 3470. I mean, yep. you can just take your carboy, pitch 3470, and you're going to get a pretty close to traditional logger result because it's such a flexible yeast. And I started out doing doing just that. Well, actually, you know, the very first one I used was a uh, harvest uh, yeast from imperial just because i I saw the temperature ranges that it was good for but i I did a couple of 3470 unpressurized at first and you know they they come out pretty close uh you know on the homebrew scale it tastes very lagerish not something i would ever uh, try to pass off professionally as a lager but uh yeah i just i kind of wanted to look into ways that i could do stuff quicker faster more efficient than anything uh, my brewing philosophy from even doing uh, back when, you know, I was known when I started at Nighthawk as a real big sour guy throughout the home brewing community and getting into the professional community. But I always took unconventional approaches to doing it. Uh, I mean, back when I was really starting to get into sours, people were still stuck on the mash super high, leave a ton of long chain dextrins, leave a lot of carbohydrates. This stuff's going to take you three, four, five years. It's going to be a long process. And I started thinking, well, how else can we do it? And at that time, people were just starting to play with uh, fermenting very low, finishing off very, very dry beers, and just really starting to discover that 
Britannomyces especially did not need those long chain sugars to chew on. You know, so everyone said they need something to chew on. And we were just starting to discover that they were taking other compounds and processing them into different flavor and aroma compounds. It didn't matter if there was long chain dextrins or not. If there's POF positive yeast, those yeasts were going to take compounds and turn them into stuff that we used to think took years to produce. Uh, well, so and the, the funny thing is, is that when you talk to sour brewers today, that's not something that people even talk about anymore, right? And so it, it, it's almost changed on its head at this point on uh, that philosophy, right? Oh, right. And I'm not even talking about doing a kettle souring. This is back, you know, just being able to make a Saison base, dry yep. it out, finish it at zero, toss in some Jolly Pumpkin dregs. And, you know, in like three, four months, man, you've got a respectable sour something that has a lot of character to it, a lot of funk, a lot of flavor, and people just could not believe you're doing this this fast. So I've always been a fan of that. And then moving into some of the stuff we started experimenting with at Nighthawk, I've always been, I, I read a lot of the forums quite a bit. I stay active with what people are experimenting with. Uh, I mean, I love the Brewlosophy guys. I love seeing just how they're taking ideas and changing them. I'm like, hey, let's try it. Let's try one against the other. Uh, I mean, pretty early on, I started doing a lot of IPAs with 100% Whirlpool hops. And people were like, well, it's not going to work that way. Like, while you're drinking it, <laughs> you're liking it, so it must be okay. Uh, I even had uh, uh, Keith Via came by the brewery one day, you know, Keith Via of Blue Moon fame. He was the first PhD in brewing science in America. Happened to be a friend of my sales rep. And he came and hung out, and he was trying one of my IPAs, and he's sitting there drinking. He's like, okay, so you know, what kind of IBUs do you think you're running? I'm like, well, you know, I'm using an experimental method. By the calculations I'm using, I think I should be somewhere in the 60 to 62 IBU range. Just, again, I'm going at it blind. I don't have the equipment here. I'm a tiny little seven-barrel craft brewery out running off of dairy equipment. And so he's like, well, I don't know. It's like, it tastes pretty good, but I don't know if your calculations are right. Tell you what, bottle up some stuff, send it to me. We'll take it to Coors. We'll run it to the chromograph. We'll do all that stuff. And I'll be damned if my beer didn't come back at 63 IBUs on the dot. We're just all blown away that you get this flavor and aroma without the extreme bitterness, just in a different way of doing things. So getting into lager stuff, uh, before Nighthawk closed, I had started looking into this, how we could possibly move into what was right then a really burgeoning just early adaptation of the craft lager movement in america but without investing a ton of time and money into it because let's face it a lot of craft breweries just do not have the time and space to do a 60 to 90 day ferment and age on a beer you got to crank it as fast as we can uh you know most breweries do run right on that edge of red and black yeah and and when you got a seven barrel system you're not you don't have the space to just hold up a fermenter for that long like the you've got a your 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 production is always you're you're thinking through how can i get as much throughput through the system as possible and uh, and a lot is just going to slow that down just that's the entire brewery's paycheck sitting in that tank waiting to be you know, pour it out and paid for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when I started seeing experiments of people, uh, you know, taking these different methods of doing it, and it actually came by through an experiment after I had been out, I hadn't touched a brew house in about a year. 
Uh, I was in the planning process of a previous brewing project, and it was taking way longer than we thought it would, as it always does. And so I just got kind of bored. I'm like, man, I got all this equipment sitting around from back in the day. I haven't homebrewed in probably five, six years. Let's bust it out and do something. I feel like making a beer. And I ended up having an issue with uh, my calculations because I hadn't done it in so long on my system. And I ended up with uh, 10 gallons of beer, and I did five gallons one way and five gallons. Like, what am I going to do with this? And it's like, well, you know what? Maybe, you should, maybe we'll go pick up this pack of 3470 and see what happens. And been reading about this. And I, what I originally intended to do was uh, make an alt beer because my plan with the old project I was working with was doing a lot of German ales from the northern part of Germany. I mean, there's a lot of great beers that don't have a ton of, uh, a ton of traction here in America, but they all had a lot of merit. You know, different types of wheat beers, a lot of the stuff from the Cologne region with Kolsch and Alt beer and just different things they're doing there. Adam beers, uh, Sticka Alts. There, there was a lot of experimentation could have been done. But I had a beer that didn't turn out right, so I went a different direction, and it kind of led me down this path to getting into the alternate fermentation lagers. Uh, not long after that one, I looked into you know, how I could do it a little better, a little cleaner, get a little closer to traditional without having to build a fermentation chamber, go through the long steps. Uh, you know, I had a buddy, my old president from the homebrew club, and I talked about like, oh, man, you got to do a half a degree a day for 30 days. That's the only way to make lager. And, I mean, the guy made a lot of a lot of great beer. He won a lot of medals, so I believed in what he said. But I figured there's got to be a better way of doing this. I mean, I just I love efficiency more than anything. And so I, you know, started reading up on the spunding valves and all that, and the pressure fermentation, and how at least it technically is in theory, but we are seeing that the pressure does suppress the phenols and esters from ever developing at these higher temperatures that we run ales. So I got into that. I bought a spunding valve from the local homebrew shop, Quirky Homebrew in North Glen. They happen to have one on the shelf sitting there. I also decided to build one myself through an article I read off of Homebrew Finds. And I've still got both those, using both today. The one that I bought from Quirky works a lot better. I prefer to use that. But <laughs> yeah, I got into it, started reading some different yeasts that were a little bit more flexible. And uh, oh God, I've probably experimented with probably about six or seven different strains of traditional lager yeast. I've settled on to about three or four now that I use consistently for everything. And, you know, I've had a lot of really hardcore traditionalist lager guys come over and drink in my house. Uh, you know, guys like Ryan Packmeyer, who you've had on. Uh, he's been over a few times and had stuff. Uh, Scott Jackson, he's also part of the New Order lager group. Uh, He's actually one of my brewing mentors. He taught me how to make saisons. He taught me a lot about Belgian brewing. Just taught me a bunch about everything uh, from my early days in the homebrew club. I mean, he comes over. It's been a while now, but I mean, he's come over once, twice a week just to to see what was on tap. And you know, actually, it impressed upon him so much. He bought a spunding valve set up, and now he's doing the pressure fermentations. And he's texting me, "Hey, how should I do this? What should I do? What temperature is this going to work right?" He's cranking out some good stuff too. Yeah, let's talk specifically about some of the yeast that do well under pressure versus ones that don't do so well under pressure, right? There, there obviously is there's a wide variety of ale yeast out there. There's just mm-hmm. as wide a variety of, of lager yeast, probably a smaller subset, but still there's variety there. 
And I yeah, could totally and- see where some yeasts do better, you know, like maybe a Southern German lager isn't going to do as well as a, as a dried uh, Safel lager yeast. So w- which ones do you find do best under pressure? Well, so far, I haven't found anything that I really don't like. Okay. Um, the only yeast that I've found that I've had not any any positive results at all so far have been from Mangrove Jack, their steam ale yeast. I think it's the M54. But again, that's kind of a hybrid yeast, so that could just be a bad yeast anyways. Um, one of the the one of the very first ones I used, in fact, I think it was the second lager yeast I ever used was the L17 Harvest from Imperial. Um, and it's been a very solid performer since day one. In fact, almost going on two years, I'm still using repitches for my original culture. Wow. So one and, pack and, of yeast has lasted me two years. Yeah, and, and I will say Imperial yeast is probably one of my favorite go-tos when it comes to just... I, I like the fact that they're double pitches. They come in those convenient bags they're e- like but i've only done ales i've I've never actually done a lager with their yeast personally mm-hmm. i should uh, but yeah i i think that they just have really fresh high quality yeast to start with um obviously it sounds like you're repitching uh are are you doing yeast slurry repitching are you growing up from like like if you do a, a slant or no, I'm I'm either uh you know I'm harvesting slurry and I might make a starter and grow it up and then split it and split it and split it, or I might just take the whole pitch. Just kind of depends on how the brewing schedule's going and what I've got on hand. Um, about a year ago, I decided to start experimenting with the White Labs 940 Mexican Lager yeast, which is sor- uh, sourced from Modelo Brewery. Yep. Just because I decided with this uh the new brewing project that I am working on to open a brewery, I'm gonna I, I've been thinking about doing a lot of Mexican style lager focused beers. You know, throwing some corn in there, a little bit of ester, just a, a little bit different. Uh, a couple other breweries have done that here before. Unfortunately, I think they were ahead of their time and they closed, like Del Norte. But I think with uh, with how popular some breweries are doing with the Mexican style beers, it's something that could be profitable. So I started playing with that. And I had read that that could be a finicky yeast when you're doing traditional styles. Uh, it's known it could toss a lot of diacetyl, which I've never had a problem with. It can toss, you know, some green apple ester, which I have not had a problem with. Again, under pressure, it's performed very well. Um, the absolute rock star that I discovered just through hanging out at the homebrew shop and talking with guys, and they're like, "Hey, we got this cool vault strain from White Labs." It's the Andex Lager Yeast, WLP 835, uh, the Kloster Andex Brewery. It's a, it, you know, it's a monastery brewery in southern Germany and Bavaria. Extremely flexible yeast. This stuff ferments just like a monster. I get super great attenuation, better than 3470, but it actually has a little bit of flavor to it. It, it has a strange quality that it, it leaves a really silky mouthfeel almost kind of like uh the french 37 11 saison yeast like it leaves some slickness to it so you can dry a beer out to 1004 1006 and it tastes like a 1010 beer in the mouthfeel and it, it's extremely repeatable i'm on probably generation 
13 or 14 of it. Wow. And it's it, at any temperature, people are having really good success with it. Even people that are doing um, open atmosphere, high temperature brewing. It's a great yeast. Uh, let's see, I've played with uh, 833, the Bach yeast, which it does perform well. Uh, my big issue with it is it's really long to clarify. It is a stubborn yeast to drop clear. Real, real. <laughs> and and if you're doing lagers, you got to have a clear beer, right? It's It's got to be crystal clear. Yeah, and I I do love the results that I get from it. But, you know, ultimately, ultimately what I've been doing with these experiments is something I want to take and move on to this brewing project that I'm doing on a professional scale. And that time is a hindrance. You know, my goal here is how fast can I make this stuff at a high quality and get it turned over to where I'm making loggers on the on the ale timetable. Yeah. So that is kind of a problem. <laughs> yeah. So um, so let's talk about seventy. Op- oh, obviously, yeah, works really well. Uh, I haven't found anything that does not work well, but I have not played with the Czech lager yeast yet. But that is coming up very soon, and. Uh, Probably in the next month or so, I'm going to start playing with using some like either like Boudvar or the Pilsner or Kell yeast. And, you know, all that stuff's going to be over at New Order Lager going through what's happening with that and how that project's going. Yeah. And let, let's talk a bit about what that process looks like for fermenting under pressure, right? So let, let's assume I'm a brand new brewer. I, I like to kind of take this from that that viewpoint, right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. And let's say, you know, hey, I'm a I'm a guy who's I've made a couple extract batches and I'm brewing in buckets, and I I want to take on a lager and I don't want to have to go get a fermentation chamber. Similar situation you were just talking about, right? And so, right. But but before we dive into that, let's take a quick break. I'm gonna grab a beer. I'm gonna we'll do a commercial break, and then when we come back, let's dive into the process of what it takes to actually get a a setup to do some pressure fermenting for some for for uh for some lagers. Sound good? Fantastic. I need to refill too. Awesome. I'm going to go fill up a beer. All right, now we're back and we've got uh Dan Moore, uh New Order Lagers, and we're going to have a, a conversation. We, we we just went to the commercial break. We were going to hop into how to pressure ferment a lager. So, you know, like I said, the question was Let's say I'm a brand new brewer. I'm brewing. I, I maybe have done my first all grain brew in a bag batch. I'm still fermenting in in buckets. I w- what stuff do I need, and how do I get to a pressure fermented lager so I don't have to go out and buy a bunch of fermentation chambers and go crazy? So, what what would be your advice there? Well, Coulter, I mean, if you're already doing brew in a bag and going into buckets, you're you're like three quarters of the way there. There's not a yeah. whole lot of extra equipment, especially if you're already a brewer that is serving out of kegs. You already have some of the equipment. If you're a guy that's into serving out of kegs, you're constantly finding kegs to pick up. You check Facebook finds and the homebrew meetup pages and let go, stuff like that. You you accumulate kegs. And so when you have a couple extra sitting around... You start getting the idea, hey, make a start fermenting in these. I've seen that thread on Homebrew Talk. It's like 300 pages long. There's something obviously going on about this. Um, I mean, as far as fermenting, the only piece of equipment you need besides the keg is going to be your spunding valve. 
you know, as yeast is fermenting and turning maltios into awesome, beautiful alcohol and everything is doing all, it's converting all these sugars and stuff, it's going to produce CO2. If you're just in a sealed keg, it's going to keep producing CO2 until the keg gives away. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> want, nobody wants a beer grenade. I mean, if you think which, your wife Which is around off, 140 PSI. That's when the, the, the little mm-hmm. pop top actually gives. I think right that's what, what it Yeah. Yeah, if, if you think your wife was pissed off about your blow-off tube going to the <laughs> ceiling, wait till you actually blow up a room with a beer claymore. <laughs> Not speaking from experience. <laughs> Don't have a wife, so I can't come on that. Comment completely. Uh, on I that. do, and if I did a beer claymore, I'd be dead. So it's <laughs> never happened to me. <laughs> so really, what you need is you need something to let off that pressure in a controlled fashion, and that's what a spunding valve does. Your spunding valve is going to attach to your your gas import on your corny keg, and it's going to be set at a certain pressure. And I've played around with a lot of different pressures, anywhere from four psi up into the fourteen psi. I find, for the most part, the sweet spot has been in that 10 to 12 PSI range for a good range of temperatures. Uh, anywhere from the low low 60s in the wintertime to even into the high, getting into the higher 70s in the summertime. That 10 PSI range seems to do really well. It suppresses the esters. It suppresses phenols from forming. Uh, one of the great benefits of doing the you know, the closed pressure fermentation is you actually get to keep some of that natural carbonation in your beer. And if you can keep things in that 8 to 12 PSI range constantly, when you're done fermenting and you go to crash it, you're reabsorbing that CO2 back into the solution that you used to be forcing with CO2. And this, it's all pretty anecdotal. There's not a ton of evidence about it. But a lot of people that are doing this do see a, uh, I guess you could say, a softer CO2 presence in the beer. You get a lot more of the smaller bubbles. You'll see people talk about small bubble versus big bubble. Forced carbonation, you get the big bubbles. You're just you're forging that CO2. You're creating a lot of carbonic acid. Yep. You get a bite to the beer. Yep. When you're doing the natural pressure fermentation, you're getting a softer, rounder feel to your palate. Well, and, and I, I'll, I'll also is, add to free. it is that, I mean, yeah, there. totally, it's free. It's there. And one thing I'll add is, is that like, I, I have a friend who croisins all of his beers, which is essentially uh-huh. this, exactly that, the right? Same he, idea. Same idea. He, he holds back some of his wart from his original beer and he calls it his green beer and mm-hmm. he'll ferment mm-hmm. out his beer. And then when he's done, he'll actually start fermenting some new beer and throw it into the, into whatever he wants to carbonate. And that's actually how he carbonates all of his kegs. And he makes phenomenal beer. And I, I know it's anecdotal, but, and I will agree with you. I personally perceive that spunded beers and beers that are, uh, croisoned, have a different type of carbonation and i believe it as well so I, i'm gonna agree with you on that so so if you're gonna spun beer like that for carbonation is it you know that you're a couple points away from your final gravity and then just pull the valve and let it pressure up what does that look like uh, that's been the more traditional way of doing it for many years uh people would say hey watch when you're about two maybe three points away from gravity and then cap your beer 
I, even you go back 10, 15 years in some of these homebrew talk threads, and people will be fermenting in a carboy, and they'll be watching it. And as soon as they get down to about that, you know, if my beer is supposed to finish at 10, 10, I'm at 10, 13, 10, 14, I'm going to transfer it to my keg and let it finish. And they're essentially, they're getting the same end result. They're getting some natural yep. carbonation. Whereas yep. what we're doing with the pressure fermentation is we're maintaining that pressure the entire time. Yep. So a day after my beer starts fermenting, you know, a day or two days into after pitch, it's carbonated beer the whole time. Granted, it's warm, so it releases it very quick. It's not going to stay in solution very long. But the, the carbonation is there the whole time. And, you know, from production, again, going back to being a pro, the production standpoint of it is, hey, I'm cutting two days off my production time. If my beer is already carbonated, when I start crashing, it's absorbing this CO2. Because, you know, we all know the colder a beer is, the more it absorbs CO2. If it's already there and it's cooling down, I'm cutting off that time. I don't have to throw it in a bright tank and just crash and pressure the heck out of it with a ton of loss and cost of CO2 in the head pressure and the beer to try and get this into a serviceable product. So again, back to my goal of efficiency, everything I can do to shave off time is increasing my profit. And again, if you get a better product out of it, even better. Yep. So it works out really well. And uh, the, the you know another big part of it, I think um, I'm getting some pretty successful beers out of this is the reduced oxygen contact. You know, when you're fermenting in a keg, you're fermenting in a closed environment. There is no oxygen ingress. And when you're done fermenting, I'm using CO2 to transfer from my fermenting keg over my serving keg. It's not touching oxygen at all either. You know, we purge the keg out, run it through. So the beer is not seeing oxygen from the time it leaves the kettle until the time it's in your glass. And I do think that does have some effect. Um, recently, I just filled up a couple of growlers for some friends just to get rid of a keg because I was sick of drinking it. When you start <laughs> moving into 10-gallon batches, you end up with a lot of excess beer, and you get really sick of it pretty fast. <laughs> That's something I really miss from pro brewing is not having to drink my entire batch of beer. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> but... Even just well, sitting COVID in a just growling. COVID's made that worse, right? Is like you, you you can't have you can't have five friends over to drink it either. <laughs> eh, you know, I got a pretty big yard, so I can space them. You know, I can measure them out. <laughs> but just putting putting this beer into a into a growler, and you know, I didn't purge it or anything. I just filled it up off the tap, capped it off, and it sat there. I was going to give it to one neighbor; he didn't want it. Give it to another neighbor. He's got to take a break from drinking due to medication. So it just sat there. And I was going over to a buddy's house from work. And I was like, oh, hey, I've got this growler beer. Let's take it over there. He likes beer. And we crack it open. And he's like, oh, this is so great. I drink it. And I'm like, oh, wow, this got oxidized. Like, this is not the way this beer is supposed to taste. <laughs> yeah. It, and it, so the it, oxygen does play a, fa- a flavor factor into everything. We all I, know that. I, couldn't agree more. And, and like, for example, you know, I'm, I'm recording the show. I, I am having a beer with you and you're having a beer with me remotely. And I, I personally ferment in kegs as well. And I ferment 
like like for example, I'm drinking a hazy IPA right now, which is a beer that is super susceptible to oxygen, right? If, if oh, they get extremely oh bad, they get oxidized, they turn purple. I, I actually, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have a, a friend that sent me a bottle of one, which like there's no way you can't oxidize it if you put it in a bottle. And I poured it out and it went and and, and it was a great beer, but it was purple as hell, right? And so mm-hmm. it, it's something where uh, the 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 hop content and the, and there's so many hops in them. They're just so susceptible to oxygen and, and, and fermenting in kegs is easily the solution. One thing that I found is I use a floating dick dip tube, right? Is that mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. I use that so that when I, when I transfer from one keg to another to get it off the yeast cake, uh, it's pretty simple because the floating dip co- tube works great. Is that what you're doing with your setup? Uh, with the spunning valve are are you using floating dip tubes or not (laughs) i actually i have floating dip tubes um and most of my serving kegs i have tried it with my fermenting kegs and honestly i was not a big fan of it um i bought a they call it a keg mentor from more beer yep and it's a 13.2 gallon i forget what that is in liters but it's a european size that somebody cut a hole in the top and they put a a four-inch TC valve onto it. Really cool fermenter for more beer. I ended up getting again from Corky, and I was like, "Cool, I can do, I can do like some 10, 11 gallon batches with headspace and everything. I have all this time." My problem, especially on the bigger batches with the floating dip tube, is as you're getting to the bottom. I'm sure you've seen that floating dip tube starts moving around. It starts whipping. Yep. And it sat there and started whipping up all the trub. <laughs> so yep. it was defeating the purpose. Um, all the, the the two kegs that I've dedicated to just doing, or sorry, the two five gallon kegs that I've dedicated to doing the pressure fermentation, I ended up one of them I cut about three quarters of an inch off the dip tube. The other one I just took and bent it. Yep. I mean, I just literally just took it out and bent it an inch up, and honestly, I get about the same results out of them. Um, besides the two five-gallon cornies, I have also uh, picked up through a Facebook homebrew sale group two 10-gallon cornies. And it was the same thing. I took them, popped it out. I kind of you know played around a lot with putting some water in the keg, measuring, taking it out, putting it in, measuring, taking it out, and chopping off some bits and pieces to where I leave about, oh, about a quarter of a gallon, maybe a little bit more of a quarter of a gallon left in it. And it's working out really well just using the straight dip tubes. They're a lot easier to clean. I don't have them whipping around and stirring up the trube and everything. And it just makes for a little bit cleaner, finished beer. Plus, one of the things when you're doing the pressure under fermentation, you do not get the same yeast growth that you do with a open atmosphere fermentation. So your cell reproduction is kind of reduced. Okay, so you but have a smaller so, yeast cake, essentially. Yes, because you're not the the yeast is being more more controlled. They're not a free for all, so you're getting less trub production, but it still seems to be producing just as much. Especially when you consider the fact that when you're doing the pressure fermentation, especially with loggers, what we're talking about today, you do not need those big, gigantic, huge, massive yeast pitch that really scares off a lot of home brewers. I know when I was first starting to get into yeah, the when I clubs, when I when I've done traditional they're, they're loggers, about, 
Yeah, yeah, they're talking I, about like 10, 10 liter yeast pitches. Oh, dude, I well, when I've done traditional lagers in a five gallon batch, I'm it's like a three liter yeast pitch. It's huge. Oh, and that's probably to most uh, traditional guys, it's under pitching. If you're not doing five thousand, you're yeah, not doing it. Right. I, I had a five thousand liter uh, uh, flask, but I would, you know, I didn't want it to overflow, so I'd always do three liters in it, right? Give it some headspace. But even then, yeah, I've got two of them. <laughs> yeah, but but. That's the point is like you're and then you're just pouring a but three liters of like gross half fermented beer into it. Right. That that was always the or, thing that killed me. Or you're having to deal with crashing it and you're talking about yeah. your starter is a week and a half to two week process. You're really committed to brewing that day and everything's on a very tightly regulated schedule yeah. to get your yeast starter propped up. And if you're not buying multiple pouches, which is expensive, I mean, expensive as hell. If you if you're talking imperial, you want two pouches, you're into the twenty twenty five bucks. That's a lot of money. You, just, you might as well just go buy a case of Carlsberg and call it good. <laughs> save you time and money, and probably a lot of heartache in the home. Yeah, totally. And, and you, uh, got, you got to take into the fact of crashing it, and some of these lager yeasts are very slow to crash. I mean, they're when you're talking about yeasts that are used to actively fermenting into the 40s and 50s you're crashing it's not like an ale yeast you gotta be like three four or five days of cold crashing to get everything dropped out it, it's just so much time and planning and everything is so precise and if you screw something up or life happens you know you're kind of in a pickle yeah well but and they're also these... used to the lagering process right uh for example yeah. traditional lager let's use an oktoberfest right uh, the reason like fest, fest beer or a Marzen was made in March and drank in October or September, end right? Of, end and, of September. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea, but the, I, the re, it was done fermenting by the end of March, but they s kept it in, in cold storage for that long to get the beer to clear out. And it's crystal clear by the time you drink it, but it's basically sat in cold aging for seven months. And mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. you know, when, when you think about producing beer at a small brewery level, like you, you worked at a seven barrel brew house, right? Or you think about doing it at a, a homebrew level, even because like, for example, I only have so many fermentation vessels, right? To clog up a fermenter for that long could be an expensive endeavor for a single beer. And it really can. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're still, uh, don't get me wrong it, sa sour production is also a commitment like that but that's a whole other show but the idea is that when it yeah, comes well, to good lord that's a whole other that's a whole entire realm of brewing <laughs> <laughs> totally but but the we'll idea do, is that we'll like do a, you, you got a dedicated fermenter too. for this thing to bulk age right and so it, it's it's something to me where pressure fermenting kind of gets past all of that right you're 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 in a situation where in ale time and at ale temperatures, you can make this crisp, clean, beautiful beer that is super crushable and crispy. And, and don't get me wrong, I am drinking an IPA right now. But the idea for me is like, uh, I respect the lager more than you know. And so it's, it's, mm -hmm. it for me is, is something where I feel these are, are great benefits for a home brewer when it comes to clogging up your, your brewing pipeline. Because the the uh, a home brewer still has a pipeline. Oh, definitely, and it's it's a tough balance. Like I was talking the other night when we were, you know, planning out the show, I did not plan my 
plan my pipeline out very well. And now I have a massive excess of beer that I'm trying to drink through so I can get kegs, you know, crashing <laughs> and moving beer through and just didn't time it out right. But well, uh, yeah, that's the great thing with uh, fermenting under pressure gives you that much flexibility too. Because like right now I had uh, a couple weeks ago, probably when I brew that beginning of December, I did a 10 gallon split. I did a Pilsner base and you know, the first half I racked off to just be a straight up Pilsner. And the second half I dosed with a whole bunch of hops to be an Italian Pilsner. But just with the way everything worked out, with I thought we were going to drink the beer that I already had faster, and we didn't, and I made some stronger beers that I thought I would bottle, and I just, well, my lazy ass hasn't gotten around to bottling it. it so it created a hit, uh, you know, a bottleneck in the pipeline. The great thing with just the straight-up traditional Pilsner, it's been sitting in that fermentation keg for, oh, probably two, three weeks past when I could have started crashing it. But because everything is controlled and sealed and just... You know, very sterile inside. That beer can sit there and wait for its turn to get into the crash and into the system and going yep. through and finding and everything, because there's no exposure to oxygen. I don't have to worry about oxidizing whatsoever. That beer is going to taste probably just as good in two days when I'm able to rack to the uh, serving keg as it would have three weeks ago when I could have absolutely s served it when it had finished fermenting. So it just gives you that just that more flexibility of timing everything out. Cause that can be a real tough thing with brewing, especially on the homebrew level when, you know, this is a hobby. This is something you do on the side. This is something you do when Jimmy soccer practice got canceled or the wife's out of town or, you know, you have the flexibility to do that in a pro setting. It's not a big deal. It's what we do. Everything is juggled. That's, that's what we're focused on hundred percent is making the beers and, they all happen on the time schedule we want them to happen. On the homebrew scale, that doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. For 99% of us, it's a hobby, and it's as we have time to do it. So when you introduce the pressure fermentation part of it, it just gives you more flexibility that you don't have to worry so much. And when you can take the stress and the hassle out of it, it makes it so much more enjoyable because that's what we're doing is to have a good time. Well, Dan, I want I want to thank you for coming on Homebrewing DIY. This was a fun episode to talk about all these different styles of lagers and pressure fermenting and just beer in general. Oh, and, I had a blast. I can't believe it's been almost two hours. Uh, well, <laughs> it's been two hours for you, but if you're listening to this show, it's probably going to be more like an hour. But uh, the point is, is that thank you so much for coming on Homebrewing DIY. I think we have more to talk about, and so we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show. Uh, and and because Dan is local in Colorado, he'll be easy for me to get back on the show. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, well, hey, I maybe, will say maybe after maybe after COVID ends, we can uh, film the show in person and we can be drinking beer on the camera. At the same hey, time. I, I have a remote podcast set up if we need to. We could totally do that. And there we uh, go. And I will say if you if you're listening to the show head to the show notes. I will have a link to new order loggers. You can interact with Dan there. If you have any questions about doing better loggers, just click on there, hop on it. This is a Facebook group. Uh, Dan is on my discord server now. I don't know if he'll use it a bunch. I hope he does, but uh, we'll, the see. Idea, we'll see. He, he's, he's not a big discord guy, but if he is on here, you could always tag him and see if he'll, uh, he'll answer your questions there. 
but yeah, the idea is is ask Dan questions. It's it's he, he's he's here to help you make better loggers. And uh, so head over to New Order Loggers on Facebook, and I'll, I'll leave a link in the show notes to get you there. Uh, oh, other than that, a, yeah, can I ahead. give another shout out to uh, Quirky Homebrew Supply here in Colorado if you're local? Oh yeah, yeah, I use Quirky all the time. It's great. I mean, Greg, Greg is the guy that got me my job at Nighthawk. That's awesome. I mean, he's a he's a dear, dear, dear friend of mine, and he's the one that gave me the push from going homebrew to pro. That's and awesome. He's a huge factor of it. That's awesome. And, and I, I got to be honest. I buy all my malt from Quirky. It's, uh, it's they have everything. It's great. Great internet pricing, local pickup. Yep. Yep. Great. It's a, it's an amazing homebrew shop. So yeah, I would also recommend Quirky Homebrew Shop if you're in Colorado. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for coming on the show, and we'll uh, talk to you next time. All right, Cole. It's been great. Can't wait for the next one. All right, now we're going to jump into this week's feedback section, and not a ton of feedback. I I only have one piece of feedback this week, and then we'll uh, wrap this show up. So f- the one piece of feedback we got this week is from Jonesy Malone, and he sent me this message on Instagram, and he says, I'm brand new to homebrewing since the day after Christmas, and your podcast is amazing. I can't stop listening. But I do have a question. Can you link me to a thermo well? I can use that. Can you link me to a thermo well that I can use with a glass carboy and also a different thermo well that I can use for a brew bucket? Thanks in advance. Also, link me to where I can support you and helps the most. I'm all in, friend. Well, thank you, Jonesy. And hopefully, I will see some support that, that's completely up to you. I'm just very, very happy that you're a listener. So, thank you very, very much. I did go and link him to a thermo well, uh, specifically one that I have on that that is on homebrew.org just because it's easy to get. I also recommend one from Brewers Hardware as well. They have any type of thermo well, but the big thing that I recommend in a thermo well is getting a spun thermo well that instead of the ones that are crimped at the bottom, you can get very, very inexpensive ones on sites like AliExpress or Amazon that are like four bucks and you know shipped on Amazon Prime, for example. But the big problem with them is they have a crimped bottom on those thermo wells. And I just think that that leaves you a place that is hard to clean. And I like the ones that are from Brewers Hardware or the one on homebrewing.org that has the spun bottom and is got a pointed tip on it it's just easier to clean also they have a really nice flared top so that if you have a cork in the top of a carboy or even if you just use the orange carboy cap which is about three dollars and just fits over the top of a carboy that thermo well is going to fit right in there because it has the two pieces and then you can use a piece of tubing on the other one for a blow-off tube that's a really great solution or if you have a double hold stopper, that would be another way as well. And for the plastic bucket, you can use the same thermo well. So it, you could buy two of them or you could have one. If you do have two, the thing with the thermo well is you now have two temp probes that you have to have. And so, for example, if you're using like a Fermin track system, you now are trying to keep two different temperatures. So what I would recommend if you're using the same fermentation chamber, just use one thermo well 
And that's your beer that's kind of controlling the temperature of the chamber. And you just kind of have to go with the other one. Just throwing that out there. You could, if you had multiple tilts or multiple eye spindles in there, you'd be fine to then monitor and track the temperature. But to adjust the temperature, if you're using a single chamber with with multiple beers in it, you kind of pick one beer and, and that's the one that's kind of controlling the chamber. So just throw that out there. I will say... That when doing a brew bucket, I just drill an additional hole in the top of the lid, add a grommet to it that is the the same size as you would use for an airlock, and then I just push through the thermo well because it has that flare top. It just sits right in, in there, and it works great. So thank you so much, Jonesy, for that feedback and, and, and that question about thermo wells. It's uh, pretty exciting. I am going to say overall... The, if you want to give feedback to Homebrewing DIY, one of the best things you can do is just send us an email to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer. And last, I'd like to say uh, thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Dan Moore for taking the time to come on the show and talk to us about New Order Loggers. It was a great conversation. There was so much more to that conversation. We ended up talking all night and drinking beers. It was it was a good time to meet and, and have the company of Dan. You can always follow us on social media. Head on over to at homebrewingdiy on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're on all those spaces. And that's it for this week. And we'll talk to you next week on Homebrewing DIY.